Well, good morning. Yeah, you can. I can hear you through the mask. I can hear it and through online. We're glad you're joining us online. Uh, if you're joining us online and you're wondering um, about the videos and the, it's looking a little different today, that's for today. Uh, our video professional is on vacation. So we're going back to doing a little bit of old school video today. We'll, we'll uh, pick that back up a little bit better way next week. But uh, we appreciate Jeremy and uh, he's getting away for some much needed rest. And we'll, be look, we'll look forward to seeing them again. Uh, next week. A couple things I want you to know about as we get started. Uh, number one, we're glad you're here. We know the mask wearing is not fun. There, I, We need to do a top 10 lessons learned wearing a mask. I, we need to do that. For me, lesson number one is I need to apologize to most people I talk to in close quarters because I have bad breath. I, does anybody, has anyone else come to realize that? Not about me, but about yourself. Uh, if you realize it about me, just keep it to yourself. I got it. I got the memo day one of wearing a mask. I think it's the mask, actually. I think the mask messes up your breath. But uh, number one, number two, I have learned, and maybe I'll share these each week. Um, if you are a gum chewer, don't blow bubbles. If you are a habitual gum chewer, it could cause a lot of problems. Um, but we are glad you're here, and we are kind of still watching everything that's happening in our community. Um, and, and we're still trying to determine what's best for uh, us as a church and how do we continue to move forward. We do still have an overflow room, and you're welcome to use the overflow room if our auditorium gets too packed, which it's not right now, but if it does get too packed, we can move over there. Or if you've got young kids and your kids need a little extra leg room, um, like, you know, to run, sometimes uh, that is more helpful in the overflow room as well. You're welcome to use that if you would like. And I do encourage you to grab a mask. Um, if you've got a journey mask, you can represent. If you've got a journey mask, smile with your eyes when you're out in public, all right? Smile with your eyes. It, you can tell. Um, but uh, we are glad you're here. Um, for those of you who chose to be with us, if you would like to contribute to Room in the Inn, uh, our offering bucket is going to be outside the door as you enter into the auditorium. We're not going to pass it during these next few weeks, but you can drop it in there. And if you would like to contribute to Room in the Inn, we're going to be providing a meal tomorrow then uh, you can just drop that there. We're going to cater this one, and, uh, and then we'll make sure everything gets where it needs to go. Also, um, we've been sharing a lot of prayer requests on, in our journey group, and I'm really thankful for the requests. I'm thankful that everyone's using it. Um, and I do want to just um, update you on one of the prayer requests we've been praying about, and that's for Ian Kologic's family. Uh, many of you have been following what's going on with his dad. He was diagnosed with colon cancer, stage four. Um, he, they had initially been told it had spread um, to other parts of his body and then just discovered um, this week after some testing that it had not spread. What they thought was cancer is not cancer. Um, but that still remains um, a significant challenge for him. He's beginning treatment, so be in prayer for them as, uh, as they're caring for him and as he's going through chemo and um, all the things he's going to have to go through over these next few weeks. That is a difficult thing to recover from. So continue to be praying for them. Uh, we are in a, the second week of a series called Jesus is Essential. And last week we spent some time talking about the in-betweens, this weird time that we're in, this weird place of uh, what does it look like for us to engage right now? What does it look like for us to, uh, you know, kind of change our patterns? 
things feel very uncertain. At times we may even feel lost. Like, I, I, don't, I don't like this new reality. I don't like this new thing that we're in. And yet, what we find often in the way that Jesus works with people is that he, puts a, he, he unsettles us. He puts us into a place where we're not exactly sure how we're supposed to respond. And it is in those moments when we're not sure how we're supposed to respond that we often listen most acutely to what God wants to say to us. It's really an amazing thing that what God does not want for us is usually the most, mostly what we do want, which is security. We want to know what's coming. We want to know that what's coming is good, right? We want to know that what's happening is good and, and it's going to continue to happen. In fact, many of our prayer lives are focused on that place of saying, God, how can you make life good? And I see bad things coming. How can you stop the bad things from coming? But what if Jesus' goal for you and for me is, is not to live that kind of life? One of the things we, we have done over this time where we've been at home, and uh, we, we are an, an on-the-run family. How, how many of you guys are on-the-run families? Not, not right now, but you're on-the-run families. Like, right, you're going, you're, you're, you've got things to do, you've got places to go, and then with kids, you've got to get kids to their stuff, and it's, it's busy, busy, busy. Our house has, was literally falling apart, <laughs> was literally falling apart. One of our decks, one of the, the beams had twisted, and some of the, the supporting structures were pulling away from the house. And I was like, Deidre, you cannot go out there and use the grill because the deck literally may fall. Now, I would like to say it had only been that way for a week or two, and then I handle stuff right when it happens. But some some of you were in our small group two years ago, knew it was a problem then. We literally didn't fix it until we were forced to be at home. Some of our definitions of essential have changed over the last few months. For me, essential was I got to do this. We got to get this done. We got to make sure work's done. We got to take care of stuff at the church. We got to get the kids where the kids got to go. We got to do the grocery shopping. We got to go see family members. We got to do this. We got to do that. All those were essential things. But along the way, I realized, well, we've got some other essential things that are falling through the cracks. Maybe some of you have found that out. We have found that uh, we don't have to eat out quite as much as we normally do. Now, Deidre may not agree with me on this one, right? Because she is the primary provider of food for us. However, we have decided it's not all that bad. And our bank account really enjoys the fact that we're not eating out as much. Some of you with young children, you've determined, you know what, eating out is really overrated and it will be for the next few years of your life but it will get better we've kind of changed our definition of what's essential and one of the things as believers we have to do and we're bombarded by lots of stuff right now we're bombarded by you need to wear a mask we're bombarded by numbers are going up we're bombarded by the number of people in the hospital we're bombarded by how are we going to handle the conversation on race. We're bombarded by financial systems and our own uh, bank accounts. We're bombarded by what's this next week going to look like, this next month going to look like. We're struggling through what does school look like as we move into school. We're struggling with what is work going to look like. Is it going to pick back up? Is business going to pick back up? Or is this kind of the new normal, which is a, a phrase nobody really likes. And we've redefined what it means to be essential. Last week, we came back to a central part of our faith, and it has to be this. For us, there has to be an essential thing in which all things are interpreted 
Because that's what essential things do. Essential things are the lens by which we view and interact in the world. And for Christians, there is one essential, and that is Jesus. Now, that could very easily sound like just a, a, a platitude, just something that we would just say and not really have any meaning to. But Jesus literally, in moving his disciples forward as his followers, he asked a very poignant question, and he said this, Who do people say that I am? And then he zeroed in on Peter, and this is what we talked about last week. Peter, who do you say that I am? And it's an amazing exchange between these two because Peter in a moment just kind of lets it all out. I, it's been going on in my mind. It's been going on in my heart. And a lot of people have been saying lots of things. He's a prophet. He's just a magician. He's a teacher. He's this nice person. But Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus says something that is so amazing. And, and it flies honestly in the face of some of our own ways of understanding faith and how it spreads. He said, flesh and blood did not tell you that, Peter. I, James didn't whisper that in your ear. God revealed this to you. This is the center of our faith. The center of our faith is that God reveals to us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. When we're not sure if we're going back to school, Jesus is the Christ. When we're not sure what's going to happen at work, Jesus is the Christ. When we're not sure if we're going to get sick, Jesus is the Christ. When someone we care about does get sick, Jesus is the Christ. And it is in that essential statement in which we can view the whole world. I love what Natalia shared just a few minutes ago. I am all about humility and mercy and grace. But there is something beautiful in watching a kid run headlong into a wall, hit the wall, bounce backward, knocked out completely cold. There's a beauty in that, is there not? It's it's little fun to watch. It's like, wait, let's watch, see if he gets up and does it again. You know, that's the kind of stuff that dads do. Moms don't do that stuff so much. That's right. But I remember I remember when our kids each had their first ER visit. Now Malia has not had hers yet. It's coming. But I remember that first one was Jake, and he launched off a couch hit the edge of a tile floor, and split his forehead open, and it was bleeding. You could see the skull. It was glorious. But it was not glorious for Deidre. It was not. And there was panic. There was CPS is going to be on our door. You know, there were all these fears, and there's going to be a scar, and how have we... How have we failed our children, which, let's be honest, we're humans. We fail our children a lot. Um, one of our kids rolled off the bed. I won't tell you who was watching them when they were a baby, but um, it was probably me. But those moments of just, I'm going to live life even if there are consequences, are beautiful. One of the things we are going to talk about in this series, which Natalia and I had not talked um, about what she was going to say this morning, but one of the things we're going to talk about is there is an inherent risk in which you take in life, and that inherent risk is something that adds to the beauty of life so profoundly that it is really hard to put into words. Risk adds 
to life. Now, let's, let's say um, good risk, right? There are some risky behaviors that don't add to life, but you cannot live life avoiding risk. If you live life avoiding risk, you will miss out on all of the great things of life. You will miss out on the, the opportunity to ask somebody to go on a date that you're scared to death to ask to go out on a date. Maybe they'll say no, but what if they say yes? There's a risk there. What if you don't like your career and you want to you want a complete change in the career, no matter where you are in the season of uh, in your own season of life, and, and you would really love to go do something else, but there's a risk. And if you avoid all risk, then you're going to stay right where you are in that wondering, should I go for it? And if you go for it, yeah, maybe it won't work out, but maybe it will, or maybe in the process of exploring that, something else even better pops up. See, there's risk in things. We started a church in, in 2008, which was the collapse of the financial markets and the collapse of, you know, home loans uh, in a recession that we hadn't seen in our lifetimes. We started a church that year. What a risk. See, in the midst of risk, there are beautiful things that happen. When we understand what is essential, we begin to analyze risk and we begin to analyze opportunities and we begin to look at the world. How do we, how do we respond to people who don't wear a mask or people who do? How do we respond when someone wants to talk about race but they talk about it in a way that is just offensive to us or we to them? You see, whenever we come back to the essentials, we begin to look at that differently. So this is a critical issue for the church today to determine what is essential for us. Is it essential that we meet inside a building? Is it essential that we are able to see each other's mouths? <laughs> Is it essential that we are able to, to, to live without any risk and still be able to worship God? What is essential to us? One of the things that Jesus began to demonstrate to, to his own disciples is if you're going to follow me and if I am essential for you, an amazing thing will happen. You will become like, like, kind of like me, not, not the son of God. Not divine, not sinless, but you would become like little Christs. When he becomes essential to us, we become little Christs. Now hang with me here for a minute. When we become little Christs, that means we have this need to know him. See, when Jesus is essential, I need to know him. If a relationship is essential to you, you need to know that person. When a relationship is essential, you need to spend time with that person. When a relationship is essential, they are on your mind. When a person is not essential, they are not on your mind. You do not spend time with them. You are not thinking about them. But those who are are constantly on our minds. We need to know him. When he becomes essential, that means we accept his message. And when we accept his message, we say, I need to be forgiven. Like I, That's not a hard one for most of us. There's a few people who are like, I don't know that I need to be forgiven anything. But, but most every other person on the planet knows there's some things we need to each be forgiven for. When Jesus becomes essential, we accept his message, which is, I need... To be forgiven. I need to repent. And I need Jesus. 
when Jesus becomes essential, we look at what he did on the cross, and what he did on the cross was not just a good story we talk about at Easter, but what, what he did on the cross is something that affects us every single day. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as we begin to follow him, we become like him. In Acts chapter 11, we kind of hear this idea um, when this first happens in Antioch. It says in, in Acts 11, verse 25 and 26, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now listen to this. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, which literally means little Christs. So the word Christian does not mean I belong to Christ necessarily. It means little Christ. Now, some of our kids, we have little mini-me's, right? And our little mini-me's represent us so completely that it's hard to deny that they're ours, either by the way they look or the way they talk. And what they do is, while they are not me... They represent me. They look like me. They talk like me. They act like me. And that's what a Christian is. A little Christ is someone who looks like him, talks like him, does what he does. It was in Antioch that the disciples, those who were following him, first were called. Those are little Christs. This is what C.S. Lewis says about being a Christian or being a, a little Christ. He says, now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed and always will exist, talking about Jesus. Christ is the Son of God, which is exactly what Peter said when asked, who do you say that I am? If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as He does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life He has. Let me read that again. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call, C.S. Lewis calls, good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. So this is what becomes essential with Jesus. When we become little Christ, we look like him, we talk like him, we act like him. We begin to experience the things he experiences. We begin to see the things he sees and how he sees. We begin to hear what he hears and how he hears. So we share in that life. We become brothers and sisters of Christ, not sharing in his divinity apart from the grace of what God has given us because of the death and resurrection of Christ. But we share in his family. Oh, this is so crucial for us. 
See, because Christianity for a long time has been about behavior, and although there are certainly behaviors that follow along what Je- how Jesus would behave if we're going to be little Christ, it is so much more than that. Jesus didn't come so we could act like him. Jesus came so that we could experience life like him. And so he's giving us the life that we ourselves cannot have apart. The life that was intended for us in the garden, but was lost after they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's an amazing thing when Jesus becomes essential because it really does change the way we see and view people. It changes the way we see and view issues of the world. It changes the way we see oppression and injustice. It changes how we respond to oppression or injustice. It changes how we respond to people who don't believe what we believe or think the way we we think or see the way that we see. It changes everything about us in that it's no longer us being us. It is us mimicking Him. And that's what it looks like when we begin to become little Christ's. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. This is, in part, not exactly why John said it. John said, I must decrease and he must increase. He's talking about the ministry of Jesus over his own ministry because there was a time John was a more popular preacher than Jesus. I've got to decrease and he has to increase. That's why Paul says, I've learned to live in any kind of situation. I've learned to live well. I've learned to live in difficulty. Everything is loss except for the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. That's what it looks like when Jesus becomes essential. Now, that does not mean that all we do is read the Bible every day, right? That doesn't mean all we do is we sit in the corner and we pray all day, every day, and we avoid all people and avoid all sin. Although there are those that have practiced their faith in that way, that is not exactly what Jesus is calling us to. So what is Jesus calling us to? We have this incredible experience that Jesus has with the disciples when he's walking around, and we find this in Matthew chapter 9. And I just want you to pay attention to all of the actions Actions and the emotions of Jesus through this time. And if we ourselves were to become little Christ, can we ourselves take on these actions and emotions ourselves? Matthew 9, beginning with verse 35, says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease. And every affliction, I don't miss what happens in verse 36. So, so far, Jesus is just, he's kind of walking around. He's visiting everybody. Like, this is why he says the Son of Man does not have any place to lay his head because he's always going. He's always going. God's always got a a purpose and a mission for him. And as he's going out and as he's healing and as he's teaching and he's talking about the kingdom because that's the kingdom that matters, not the one we're going to vote on. In just a few months, he's teaching about the kingdom. Because what he wants for them is to experience what he himself has experienced in 
his own existence. He wants to share that with us. He's teaching about this. And then as he comes, he has an, ex- he has a, an expression that we see time and time again with Jesus that we find in verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds. Now, I don't know who were in the crowds, but generally in the crowds that were following Jesus, you had the poor, you had the sick, you had the lame, you had the down and out of society. You also had people trying to trip Jesus up. You had the wealthy that were just curious what in the world is going on. And in all of the crowds, you had a big bunch of sinners, right? Every one of them. Some of them big sins in our own minds, some of them little sins in our own minds. Jesus would say they're all equal. But when he saw the crowds, all these people, all these messed up broken lives, all these people that didn't fit, all these people that were messing up every single day of their life, he looked out on them and he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, which to me seems like a really passive-aggressive statement. Like, you know, someone who's always working. I really wish I had somebody over here to help me. You you know, like, I know what they're saying. I really wish somebody would come take care of this. Jesus was calling them to the same lifestyle in which he was living. This is what we see in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Number one, we see Jesus was intentional about where he went. We, as little Christ, must be intentional about where we go. He was intentional about where he went. It says, he went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Jesus was intentional about where he went. Also, wherever Jesus went, he taught. Have you ever considered that wherever you go, you need to teach. Have you ever considered that? This is where I think there's a huge disconnect for us today is because we want to go experience. And, and if I'm nice, then that's a good reflection on Jesus in my life. Like, I just need to be nice. Like, you know, nice mask. <laughs> Thanks for getting me through this line of 50 people. You're the only one open. Thanks. I appreciate you. You know, I want to be nice. You should be nice, by the way. But that's not exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was teaching everywhere he went. Have you ever considered that when you walk into the grocery store, you were there to teach? Have you considered that when you go to work, you were there to teach? you considered that when you come to sit in a service, you are here to teach? When you are here picking up kids, you're there to teach? If you go out to eat when you leave here, you are there to teach? Jesus was intentional about where he went, and whenever he went somewhere, he was teaching. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to walk around and you know, get your own podium and put some wheels on it so it's easier to move around and stroll it in to the to wherever, you know, the the host area is at the restaurant and plop it down, and while you're waiting for your table, you expound on the beauty of Romans 13. You know, that's not what what I mean by you teach. But have you ever considered that you are not just there to represent Christ well, you are actually there to show people what it looks like to know Jesus the way that you do? 
Now, I recognize there are some places you you can't just proselytize. Like, you know, if you're a teacher and you walk in and you say, kids, we're not talking about math today. We're going to talk about hell. That is not a good career move, all right? Not a good career move. I'm not suggesting that you need to crack open your Bible every time you need to have a, a meeting about sales forecasts. But you will view your life differently if you believe that you are commissioned to teach in every moment of your life. In some ways, it makes it easier. Like when someone really frustrates you, they cut you off, they say something that really makes you mad. It can sometimes hard to be hard to be nice, but you can teach in that moment. Maybe you can teach what it looks like to turn the other cheek. And teach what it looks like to have compassion on someone who doesn't normally experience compassion. Jesus taught as he went. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Now listen, it's easy to have compassion on people that like you. It's easy to have compassion on people that have something you want. It's easy to have compassion on people that say good things about you. But can you have compassion on people that don't? See, that's what Jesus did. As Jesus looked over the crowd, he's not looking at followers. He's not looking at people who have gotten it together. He's looking at people who are broken and messed up. He calls them helpless. They're lost in need of a shepherd. He had compassion on the crowds. They were harassed. They were helpless. They didn't have a shepherd. Now, it's interesting. If you want to do a study to see where Jesus had compassion on people, it's really not hard to do. But it's amazing all the places Jesus had compassion on people. The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus looked out over the crowds, and he had compassion on them. So he fed them. A leper would come up, and he would have compassion on the leper and would heal them. Blind man, healed because of compassion. It was compassion that motivated him when they brought a woman caught in adultery, which was like, if there were bad sins, like that's one of the bad, bad, bad ones. It, had a, a, it was a crime punishable by death, and it was seen as a sin not only against God and of yourself, but also against your community and your family. And instead of Jesus enforcing the law, he had compassion on her, and he said these incredible words that it would behoove us in a very divisive time when it's easy to, to spread venom on any number of issues. He said simply, you with no sin in your life, cast the first stone. And in that moment, pardons this woman and tells her to go and sin no more because he had compassion on her. Are we living in a world in which Christianity is compassionless? Have we stopped having compassion for people? See, if we're going to be little Christ, if Jesus is essential, one of the, the driving motivators needs to become compassion. And I say needs to become because I, I didn't I didn't get saved, and then all of a sudden I was compassionate. 
Like even today, I still struggle at times to be compassionate. Like sometimes I I have to come back and apologize for a lack of compassion. I know you all don't do that, but I have to do that. But I do believe, and as I look back over my life, I have become more compassionate. It's one of the reasons we've had the difficult conversations on race we've had because I talk to my friends, and I don't agree with everything they say. I don't agree with every... uh, you know, retelling of historical events or every way in which we solve the problem of race in America or the world. I I don't agree with everything they say, but I listen to my friends and I am moved with compassion that they are hurting. And I believe what Jesus would do when someone was in front of him and was hurting is that he would have been moved with compassion. You know what the greatest compassion killer is? in the world is right now? Oh, it's Facebook. It is it is Facebook. I saw a meme the other day. I can't even remember who the fighter was because I'm not I don't follow fights. I try to stay out of those as much as I can. So I don't even watch them on TV. Uh, and and a fighter had become a commentator and he was thinking about stepping back in the ring and a fan said, No, you know what, you make a lot better commentator than you do a fighter i wouldn't i wouldn't do that and the fighter responded on twitter and he said uh yeah do you want to come say that to my face and he said no you would you would beat me up i just want to say it on twitter <laughs> that's what he that was his response the fighter's response was okay that's fair that's fair that's fair that that's the world we live in i can drop the venom and run what are we having compassion about someone who votes differently and they they want to tell everybody how much they vote differently can we have compassion for them when they we have different views what about someone who thinks that wearing a mask is the answer and that we feel like we shouldn't have to wear one can we have compassion for those that feel the need to wear one what about if someone won't wear one and we think they're just out trying to kill everybody, can we have compassion in recognizing that everyone is struggling through all of this time? See, when Jesus had compassion, it moved him to do something. What does it look like for us to be moved with compassion to do something for someone? And I know many of many of, of, of you do. Maybe everyone does. Uh, there are all kinds of ways Christians are moved with compassion when no one's watching, and I believe God is just beaming, so excited to see when you know his followers are, are, are moved with compassion in a way that they don't get any applause for it. I, I believe that happens all the time. Whether you're driving by and you see someone who's in need, and you meet that need, being moved with compassion moves us to action. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. It's something that we've got to learn to put at the forefront of everything we do as a church. Now, our strategic people say, yeah, but if you have compassion on everybody, they'll walk all over you. And I remember Jesus saying something to the effect of, you will be like lambs to the slaughter. See, Jesus never intended for us to live a life that we were never taken advantage of. 
because we take advantage of Jesus every single day. He died on the cross for us, and yet I still sin. I, you know, depending on your theology, no, you don't. Yes, I do. I know I'm forgiven. They're covered, and I am thankful for that, but I am not yet perfect. <laughs> and so I'm taking advantage of Jesus' death every single day because if I were going to die for you, I'd be like, go and sin no more, or I'm not doing it, you know? <laughs> That's not the way Jesus loved us. It's not the kind of compassion he had on us. You are going to get taken advantage of, and if you are taken advantage of, guess what? So was Jesus. And if we are little Christ, we have a bigger calling than making sure no one takes advantage of us. Bigger calling is to be a little Christ. After all of this and these experiences in which he's had, he has this call that he issues to not only his disciples, but to us as well. He's, Jesus invited his disciples to gather the harvest. Before we leave this, this point, I don't want you to miss the amount of compassion Jesus has for you. See, he's not asking you to do something he's not doing for you. How messed up are you in your life? How messed up are your thoughts? How messed up have your behaviors been? And yet Jesus says, I love you. You are mine. Your sins are covered by my blood. I want you with me in eternity forever. That is compassion. many times as believers do we mess up? We kind of walk away from God and we don't spend time talking to Him and then life just kind of implodes. And we come back to Him and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I've not made you the center of my life. I've not, you've not been essential to me. And yet He welcomes us back just as He does the prodigal son. He has compassion. For us. How about the time that you did something that you're utterly embarrassed to tell anybody about, and yet Jesus says, they're mine. They're mine. We are a part of his family. It's great compassion. How many times has he made our path straight when we've made it as crooked as it could possibly be? Jesus invited his disciples to gather the harvest. In other words, we would, could say that as Jesus invited them to be little Christs. I'm doing what I'm doing, because that's what Jesus is doing, right? He's gathering the harvest. He's going out and sharing, the, sowing the seed. And we remember it's not just about our words or our actions. When Peter recognized he was the Christ, Jesus said, Ah, you didn't figure that out yourself, and no one told you. It is only because God spoke to you, which is when we understand the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to repentance, gives us the ability to recognize God, hear from God, repent, and experience new birth in Christ. That's all the Holy Spirit. It's really an amazing thing. All Jesus is saying that you're supposed to go out and do is just tell people about the kingdom because remember, that's what he was teaching in the synagogues. In every city he went to, he was teaching about the kingdom. Let me tell you about this place that's not like the one you live in. Let me tell you about a people that are not like the people you do life with. Let me tell you about a, a king and is not like the people that you find yourself in submission to. Let me tell you about this. And they will be moved or not moved by the Holy Spirit. 
So how do, how do we do this? This is like one of those things that, like you can't do a bulleted list for how do you do this. And this is, that's what's beautiful about Christianity is because Jesus didn't give us a bulleted list. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And then he said the Holy Spirit's going to move you into the places in which you need to do this and enact this and empower you to do these things. The Holy Spirit's going to do this when you, but I'm a preacher. I like bulleted lists. So how do we do this? Number one, we do become little Christs. We do become little Christs. We endeavor to look like him, talk like him, act like him. When people look at us, go, oh, it's one of Jesus' kids or brothers or sisters. Because he acts just like him. She acts just like him. And that is dependent on, number two, we have to be transformed. That means changed. That means we're not the same. That means people can tell a difference in us. Romans 12.2 says, don't be conformed to this world, which is what we struggle. We sometimes call that relevance. Sometimes relevance means we make the world understand in a better way who God is. Sometimes it just means we're conforming to the world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How else do we do this? Oh, you've already, you already know this one. Love others and demonstrate compassion. Having compassion for people. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he said something that demonstrated the level of his compassion and forgiveness that few, if any, of us could match. And after he had been nailed to the cross, after he had been beaten into an inch of his life, after he had been spit on and cursed, made fun of, he just looked up to his father and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is a heart of compassion. I want to encourage us, if Jesus is essential, the way we talk to others will be of compassion. The way we deal with others, compassion. There we go. John 13, 35 says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, people will call you a little Christ if you have love for one another. It means that we value what Jesus values. We are little Christs. It means we go where Jesus would go. This is a time when compassion is in short supply. It's in short supply because we're stressed. Stress is the enemy of compassion. If I am stressed, I am less likely to be compassionate towards somebody else. It's one of the reasons... We're called to have a Sabbath. And it's one of the things I believe God is using this pandemic for us to reduce some of the stresses of our lives because the pandemic's going to be over. And then we're going to either go back to those stresses or we're going to say, you know what, I really am glad I didn't have those. I'm not going back, which does not mean your job, by the way. Like, I really like not working. I'm not going to ever work again. 
I, I like to tell people I, I choose to be independently wealthy. Um, it doesn't really work out that well. But you can choose to do that and not ever work again. It's not like you can remove all stress from your life, just like you can't remove all risk from your life, and risk is going to bring a level of stress. But there is a truth to the fact that stress is the enemy of compassion. If you're not sure about that, at the end of a long day, go to Walmart when there's you know, one line open. Do you feel compassionate? Stress is the enemy of compassion. We've got to structure our lives in a way that we're not stressed out all the time. There, some is unavoidable. We have the opportunity to demonstrate what Christ has demonstrated to us. When Jesus is essential to us, we look more and more like him. Pray with me, Father. God, I pray that as we go out of here and we have the opportunity to use all the tools of our disposal to demonstrate love and compassion, I pray that we would not use it to share shame, to hurt or oppress others. I pray that as we go about our day and go to the places that we need to go, I, I pray that we would see people the way that Jesus saw people and, and not one of anger or judgment, but we would look at them with compassion and love. I pray for a supernatural ability to do that right now when we are all stressed out. We are uncertain about what's coming. We are uncertain about what is. God, you, you are doing something. I believe you are doing something in your church right now. And I pray that we would not just represent you well, but we would actually do the things that you did and we would show people the beauty of the kingdom the way that you showed them and we would show love in a way that is true, not manufactured in the way in which the world does, but we would show a true representation of what it means to love someone. Father, help us as we go through this time to be little Christs because you are essential to us. In Jesus' name we pray. One for you guys.